Pastor Dennis had originally asked me to preach next Sunday, and I said I'd love to, but I'm going to be somewhere between Philadelphia and New York, so that's going to be difficult. Marty suggested a webcast, and I thought, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe. Communion would be a little difficult, but, you know, we could do something. So I'd given up on the idea of, I was looking forward to preaching. I I love to preach here. And then uh, I got a phone call saying, can you preach this Sunday? I thought Parker was preaching. Well, Parker had other things going on this week. So uh, praise God. So I'm thinking about children, Parker's new baby, and children are never far from my mind obviously. And one of the blessings of children is that, uh, to borrow a title of now a nearly ubiquitous movie in our, in our society, they often tell us inconvenient truths. Yes, especially when they turn 13. <laughs> now, my point is not that Lydia lectures me about global warming. Not yet, anyway. It's about dinner. I love to cook, and I don't cook as often as I'd like, but when I do, I like to make an ordeal of it. That word is intentionally ambiguous. So I go to the the cookbook, and I find a recipe, and then I go get the fresh ingredients from the store, and, and I modify the recipe appropriately so that it's got a little bit of me in there. It's not just, you know, cookie cutter right out of the pages. And about three hours later, we sit down to a simply delightful meal. So my daughter and my other children often, when they find out that I'm in charge of cooking tonight, please, Papa, don't let it take so long. <laughs> Qui, moi? What? Of course not. I would never dream of doing that. We'll eat so quickly, you won't even know what was coming. And then, alas, several hours later, (laughs) well past sundown, we're sitting down for the meal. Hungry and tired, but it's good. Lydia has learned not to believe me when I assure her that it's not going to take this long. She just knows better. And I think we can all agree that she probably has some justification, maybe even a lot of justification. But the problem comes, if I can transition from that humorous story, to believing when our Heavenly Father prepares the meal. And he says, it's going to be what? A delightful meal. And we say, like my children, please, Papa, don't let it take so long. The difference is, is that he is always right. He is always right in how long his meals take to prepare. He knows. He is the very source of life. He knows what we need to be sustained, doesn't he? He knows when the meals should be quick and when they should be banquet affairs that take weeks or months or years or a lifetime to prepare. So I'm going to speak on this matter of believing God and trusting in God's promises this morning. My text is Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, and 
The title I've given this message is What God Sees. And some of you like to take notes. I'm going to give you an outline in advance. Some of you are visual learners, and because I'm a teacher, I understand that. So for each point in the outline, I'm also going to give you a picture or an image that will help you follow along this morning. The first point of my sermon this morning, what God sees is the preparation of what God sees is difficult. So that point is going to be it's difficult preparation. The image I'd like to leave you with on that is if you've ever been, uh, if you've ever seen a bulldozer grading a piece of property for the building, you know what, can you picture that? A giant yellow machine and it's kind of clearing the land and and sometimes it has to uh, unroot trees in the process, right? Sometimes the grading is quite difficult. Sometimes there are giant rocks that have to be removed, piles and piles of them even. So that's the difficult preparation. And as the blade cuts into the earth, there's difficulty there, isn't there? So that's the first point I'll be talking about. The second point I'll be talking about this morning is the foundation the, the, the foundation of what God sees, I'm going to show you, is death. And so the image in this building analogy that I'm trying to paint for you here is once the property is graded and, and once the, all the tractors have done their work, it's time for the foundation to be poured and laid, right? Except in this case, I'd like you to picture not a, a white concrete foundation, if you will, but a red one, a red foundation, a blood red foundation to signify death. So the foundation of what God sees is death. And then finally, my third point will be this morning is that the revelation of what God sees, the uncovering, the the final grand finale is delight. So this is its delightful revelation. And to use this house analogy, finally after all the weeks of preparing and framing out the walls and, and running the wire and plumbing and all of those things and putting on the, the roof and then adding the drywall inside and, and adding the, the, the trim to all the doors and to all the baseboards and so forth, you finally get the keys to the new house. And isn't that a delightful moment? So that's its delightful revelation. So as we begin to examine what God sees, let's turn to Scripture with these points in mind and listen to God speak to us from Genesis chapter 22. You can listen, or if you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles and follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 22. This is God's eternal word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham said, here am I. He said, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went out to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand 
he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am. Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived. At Beersheba, the word of God. Let us pray. God, we we sense already that what you see is so different than what we see. And so we do need you to show us, even in this text, even in this moment, to open our eyes that we might see the wonderful things that you have revealed for us. Open our ears, help us, and enable us to hear that we might live. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, notice that the preparation of what God sees is difficult. And to discuss this point, I need to address some of the larger context that we find in Abraham's life in Genesis. At the outset, the difficulty of what God sees, I should mention, is not with God. The difficulty is with us. Think about what Abraham had to go through to get to this point in his life. After God made his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham had to leave his country and his people, without a map, by the way. It's like, get in the car, start driving, and I'll download some directions. It was that sort of a thing. Then he had to wait 25 years in addition to which he had to experience famine in Egypt and fight against a foreign king. This is a difficult preparation, all for a promise that God sees, and yet Abraham doesn't. Through this whole time, I'm sure Abraham was wondering, where is this promise of a son? 
We live in, an, in, an, in a generation and in an age of what has been called instant gratification. In fact, the, the, we're in a political season and I'm told that the, that the sound bites have gone from you know, almost 10 seconds long to almost three or four seconds long. What we, our capacities are, are shrinking, right? The, the time in between the, uh, the images in a movie or in a video are getting smaller and smaller. Our attention needs to be constantly refreshed in a sense. So thinking about waiting 25 years for a promise to come about is almost, if I may quote another movie, inconceivable. <laughs> Abraham didn't see it coming. It was nowhere on the horizon. There wasn't even any indication that God had even remembered his promise. And so, left in this difficult situation, we're talking about the difficult preparation, left in this difficult situation, on not one but two occasions, Abraham lied about his wife, saying that, and it was actually a half-truth, she was his sister. The rationale goes like this. Hmm, if God's going to bring forth from me and Sarah a son or something from us that's going to bring a blessing to the world, then since he clearly is not aware of what's happening right now, this king might kill her, might kill me, I need to do something about it. He had to step in there. And then, and this is the, the most famous sort of taking charge part of Abraham's life, since, since Sarah was so old and since Abraham was so old, they had this great idea. How about Abraham has a child with Hagar? Clearly, this would be a great way for God's promise to come about. Sort of the creative version of, of theology. When God doesn't do what he said he was going to do, you figure out a way that God can do it your way. I think at the bottom of all of Abraham's difficulty, you can hear there is a sense of control there. I think Abraham and Sarah had some control issues. But what's behind that? What's behind their desire to take control from God, I think, is fear. At the, at the very bottom, I think Abraham and Sarah were afraid. They were afraid that God's promise might not come true. After all, Abraham could have said to Sarah, Sarah, my dear, no matter how bleak things look, don't worry, God's going to come through for us. He's going to do what he said. But Abraham didn't. He said, that sounds like a good idea. Let's try this Hagar solution. I'm convinced that through these trials and difficulties, these difficult preparations, God was disciplining Abraham. He was teaching Abraham. He was preparing Abraham. How does that relate to us? Well, I think we need to say, first of all, that there's a lot of differences between us and Abraham. After all, you and I probably will never have a seed that will bring a blessing to the world. Let's just clear that up right now. Second of all, we will probably will not enter into the number of the patriarchs. That's an office that's been closed. There are only three. So we can't just simply go to Scripture and, and immediately assume that the exact same way that God is dealing with Abraham is how he's going to deal with us. But what 
but if we, if we get down to the base level, what's going on with Abraham? Abraham is looking at God's promise and he's having trouble believing it. That I think we can relate to. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul sets forth Abraham and his faith as an example for us even in Romans 4. And so Abraham's faith or lack of faith is very relevant to us, I think. We are called to imitate Abraham's faith as he believes in God's promise. And what we see in this greater context of Genesis 22 is that it wasn't easy for Abraham. It was a difficult preparation for Abraham. It was hard for him. And I find that I can relate to that very well. As I look at what God has promised me, as I read the scriptures, I find it hard to believe that these things can actually be true. Maybe you can relate to this. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And yet, more times than not, I find myself feeling very alone. Very alone. God says that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his promise. How many of you have felt like me, a little cynical about that promise at times? This is good? In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And there has been more than one occasion in my life, and maybe you're like this, where showing mercy has been anything but a blessing. It's only brought me trouble. What I see so often doesn't go along with what God says. I am often inclined to look at what I see and, and assume and to judge that that is the basis on which all these things are coming about. And I forget that what God sees is different. And that in fact, he is using these trials, as with Abraham, to prepare me. It's a difficult preparation, but it is preparation. I like to give God directions, sort of like, you know, the backseat driver. Or if you ever took driver's ed, where your uh, driving instructor had a second set of controls. How convenient. I'm thinking about investing in one of those cars myself, actually. <laughs> I'll need it in a couple of years. I'm not going to share any more personal illustrations along these lines. I just decided that. What we are learning, as Abraham had to learn, that we need to trust God first, not last. We need to trust him all the way and not just three-quarters of the way. What does the saying goes? A bridge that goes three-quarters of the way across the chasm is no bridge at all. It's sort of like, I was patient for four hours, God. What were you doing? Well, he was showing up in the fifth hour. It's sort of like it wasn't really patience at all. It was just a long fuse on your anger. And so we need to learn to trust God and to wait through to completion. So often, my need to be in control, as I've mentioned, is a result of my fear. I'm afraid of what might happen this and what might happen that. It's kind of the opposite of the Sesame Street cartoon that I saw as a kid growing up where the little girl was about to do something like mean to her sister, for example. I can't remember exactly how it went, but... Then in the cartoon it says, well, if I am mean to my sister, she might scream. And if she might scream, then it might 
wake up my parents. And if it wakes up my parents, then they might get upset. And if they get upset, they might knock the vase off. And it goes on and on. And then she decides that it's probably not a good idea to be mean to her sister. Well, we do that, but in the opposite way. We're second-guessing God this whole time. Well, if I obey God, then this might happen. And if that happens, then, then this might happen. And if I do that, then, then that might happen. And if that happens, then that would be the end of things. So, therefore, I don't need to obey God. Kind of neat, isn't it? The preparation for what God sees is difficult because it calls us to trust what we can't see. God's discipline is not easy. He promises that the trials, though, that he sends us are because he loves us. Since he loves us, he wants us to be close to him, and he knows that what we see is usually the thing that is in the way of us getting close to him. So what he does is he calls us to go around what we see or to look through what we see or to wait to act on what we see because in those activities, in those kinds of actions, our love for him and our closeness for him increases. I find that in my relationships, fear throws up walls. Is that something that you've experienced? When you're afraid of someone, what do you do? You back up, you cross your arms, you lean away, you don't commit, right? And what, if that's true in human relationships, I think it's even more true with the Lord. We pull away from God. We struggle to draw close to him. And his blessing, I think, in that measure is limited in our lives. I love the verse in the Bible where it says, perfect love casts out fear. I love that verse for two reasons. One, it teaches me that I don't have to be afraid. But two, I believe perfect love can be seen in a couple of ways, one of which is a mature love. Not a love that's free from sin, not love that's unmixed at all, but a love that's mature, a love that's complete in that sense, a love that's, that's well-seasoned, that's well-trained, a love that has been prepared through difficulty. That kind of love casts out fear. So that we see that as God prepares us through the difficulties of our lives, we are enabled to love him as we should. I love the hymn that says, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart, wean it from earth, through all its pulses move, stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art. Help me, make me to love thee as I ought to love. We need the Holy Spirit if we're not to be afraid, if we're going to trust God in the midst of our difficult preparation. So the, the property has been graded now. We've, we've seen how the, the bulldozer has to prepare the job site, right? Now it's time to lay the foundation. That's my second point. The foundation of what God sees is death. This is its death foundation. I believe that the difficulties that I've sketched out with Abraham truly were preparing him for the text that's before us this morning. Notice that we begin in Genesis 22 with the words, after these things. Now I'm taking that in an expansive sense. It fits my theme as well, which is helpful. After these things happened, after Abraham was promised this promise, 
after Abraham was called to leave without a map, after he was called to leave behind his family and didn't have a forwarding address, after he had to, to trust God for, for the, the famine in Egypt, after he had to trust God for the battle, after he had to trust God in the case of, of telling uh, the, the king that he was visiting that Sarah was his sister, and he failed, right? After all of these things, okay, and after Isaac was finally born, after he had finally seen the fulfillment, or at least a partial fulfillment of this promise, after these things. You see, I'm taking it in that full sense of the word. Now we come to the very foundation of the promise, which is death. In the specific trial described by, by Moses in this text, the specific trial relates to death, doesn't it? God's tested Abraham, tested him, and said to him in verse 1 or verse 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, and as if to emphasize, God says, Whom you love. This is the delight of your eyes. This is the one that you've waited all these years. This is the one that you've been through all these trials for. This son, this one, that son, take that son and offer him as a whole burnt offering. If I had more time, I'd love to go into some of the theological implications of this whole burnt offering and how and the significance that that played. I, I can't do that this morning. But nevertheless, he's called to sacrifice his son to death. And Abraham does so. There's no account in the text that he, he, he wept at the announcement. There's no account in the text that, that he walked up the mountain with the, with the bent back and, and wailing as he went. There's no account in the text that, that Abraham took a season of grief with, with his wife Sarah and said, Sarah, what are we to do? And, and comforted. There's nothing of that. Now, it could be that Moses simply left those emotions out of this passage, or, if I'm right, it's actually the fact that Abraham, as the text says, got up immediately, early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went to obey the Lord. He simply trusted God. Abraham, I should say, didn't go up on the mountain to be accepted by God. He didn't do this thing because he knew that if he did this one last thing, that finally God would, would accept him and, and he'd be in God's good graces. No. God had already accepted him. We, we read back in Genesis 15 that Abraham's faith was credited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. That's not why God, uh, Abraham went up the mountain. Abraham went up the mountain because he loved God and he trusted God and he knew that he was already accepted. And he knew, furthermore, I believe, that God was going to keep his promise, even if that meant that literally he would have to slay his son, and that on the spot, God would have to raise up Isaac from the dead right then and there. That's how certain, that's how mature, I believe, Abraham's faith is at this point in his life. Look at the text. Abraham rose early in the morning. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and went to the place that God told him. Verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go there to worship. And in another version, it makes it explicit what's here, only implicit. We will come back to you. We will come back to you. We're coming back. 
Me and the boy are coming back. There's no question here. God is a promise-keeping God. I've learned that the hard way. I've been prepared through difficulty, trial, and testing. I know that he keeps his word, and I don't have to second-guess him. And in this one case, in this one situation, for once in my life, I'm actually going to trust him. God could do it. If God had to, he would. If that's the only way that the promise would come about, Abraham knew that that's what he would do. And I, I'm, I'm encouraged with this viewpoint, or I'm, I'm emboldened with this view, because the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 talks about a parable that, that Abraham believed in the resurrection of the dead in Hebrews 11 as if from a parable. So through this situation, somehow God worked resurrection-like faith in his servant Abraham. I need to mention at this point as we're talking about the foundation of what God sees as death is that, that many people come to this text, especially people that are skeptical of the Christian faith, and say, what kind of horrible God is this? Child sacrifice? This is your God of love? I don't think so. This is a monster God. This is not a God of love. If that's the kind of God that you believe in, I want nothing to do with it. And I have to admit, as I was preparing this text, I was really struggling with this view. I was, I was um, inhabiting this view. I was trying to see this view for what it is, and, and I couldn't get around it. I, I couldn't get around the fact that God did command Abraham to sacrifice his son. What can I say to you? And then it occurred to me, I don't have to say anything. That is, it's as horrible as it sounds. There is no need to, to candy coat it or to make an excuse for God in this case because there is no excuse. It is as horrible as you think. And in fact, what occurred to me is that it's even more horrible than that. Because God didn't, he didn't in the end require Abraham to kill his son. The angel of the Lord comes and stays Abraham's hand. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy. The, the reason that this is even more horrible than I initially realized is because God offered his own son. The brutality of God here is far beyond what I ever imagined. God didn't offer, tell me to offer my son in the end. He offered his son. And there is no angel who stayed the father's hand on that day. And so what we see here is that the promise of God has a death foundation. There is something about death that is required for this great promise to come about. And for, for someone who's skeptical to look on this in horror is right because what this shows us is that unless someone were to die, there is no blessing for the nations. The horror of this is not that God should ask me or you to sacrifice our son, but that God himself had to sacrifice his son for my sin. And I should be horror, horrified and ashamed at what a monster I am. In the end, had God allowed Abraham to follow through with his sacrifice, that wouldn't have brought blessing to anybody. This is what Paul is teaching, I think, in Galatians 3 and 15 and 16, where he said, not to his seed as in plural, but to his seed as in singular. There was a son 
that had to die, a son of Abraham. And Jesus, as we read in Matthew chapter 1, is that son of Abraham. And Jesus came to die. He came to die. Jesus paid the penalty for my sin in his flesh. He is the whole burnt offering, the perfect Isaac, the ultimate sacrifice who would in his flesh and in his blood bring a blessing to the nations because in the death of Jesus, all nations are brought to God. How does this apply to us? Well, I think first of all, we need to recognize again that there's a difference here. We don't have to offer our sons or our daughters in sacrifice to God. We don't have an Isaac in that sense. The, Isaac has already died. The greater Isaac, that is, Jesus Christ, has already died and risen again, and he lives to deliver all who trust in him. And I think in, in, in relation to this, a second application is we don't have to do anything to cause God to accept us. We don't have to climb the mountain. We don't have to climb it, in a, in a sense, to appease God. And related to this, God is not angry that he needs to be appeased. His wrath has been appeased through his son, Jesus Christ. When we sing at Christmas time, peace on earth, what we're singing about is not so much that, that wars of men and women may cease, but we're singing that the war between heaven and earth has ceased, that God is appeased, that God is not angry with us, and we can come to him and trust that he accepts us. So the promise given to Abraham is true, that all nations will be blessed through him. But the foundation of that promise, the promise that God saw, the foundation of what God saw was death. There's no way around it. And there's no apology that we can give for it. All we can say is, not only is that horrifying, it's even more horrifying than you realized. Jesus had to die but he died that we can live. So my question is, when God calls you to serve him, he's not calling you to do something that is impossible through Christ. He's calling you to look to the one who died and rose again so that you can have strength to follow him in the most counterintuitive of situations that you might face. And I love this, how in the text in verse 5, Abraham says, we are going to worship don't you love that? We are going to worship. To me, this is application as well because when we follow God and we do what he says and we, and we respond in faith to his promises, trusting that what we can't see is going to come about, that is worship. Worship isn't so much coming to a building at a certain time of week. Worship, my friends, is obedience when we listen to what God says and we follow through in faith. So we've seen the, the preparation, the difficult preparation of God's promise. We've seen its foundation, his blood. Do you remember the third image there? The, not only the deathly foundation there, that red concrete slab, but the third image is the completed house. Here are the keys. I was traveling recently and had the, um, the less than fortunate opportunity to see uh, a game show. And on the game show, the, the game show host, uh, you know, the curtains parted and 
and what was behind the curtains but a brand new car. And the game show host handed the lady the keys and she, was, she, she acted to the script perfectly, jumping up and down and screaming and crying and hugging this person as if, you know, it was like the best, and it probably, I mean, I probably would do the same thing. <laughs> Don't want you to get the wrong impression there. What delight though, right? I mean, we love to see people delighted. There's something about that that just, you can't take your eyes all off of it. You know, how ridiculous is she going to be? To what extreme measures is she going to go to show her delight? You just, you just got to watch it. It's riveting. It, it locks your eyes in. There's something about that that I think we crave. We crave that unhinged delight, that ability to become untied and unloosed and just abandon ourselves to delight. And yet, there's so little in this life that we can actually do that with. So much of what we have and receive comes with a catch. Probably even that car comes with a catch. There's so few times that we can just say, okay, you know, all, all restraint aside, I'm just going to give myself to celebrating this moment. Kind of like, you know, a U of A basketball game. The revelation of what God sees is that delight. It's the delight that's behind all of these disappointing delights that we look for. It's the thing that we're made for. It's, it's the thing that we live for. Whether you realize it or not, and this may sound arrogant, but that is what you're living for. You are living for the moment when all veils are removed and you can see your creator, lover, redeemer face to face and he will embrace you and you will embrace him. That is the very pulse of your life. And that's what we wait for. The problem is that too often we give ourselves to lesser things. In that hymn that I quoted earlier, wean it from earth. Wean us from, from God forgive me for, for settling for lesser pleasures, for lesser delights. And I don't think this means that we, that we can't or we shouldn't enjoy these lesser delights, but we need to enjoy them as vectors, as things that point us to something beyond themselves and not as ends in and of themselves. How do you do in delighting when God calls you to trust in his promise in the midst of difficulty or even death? The image that came to my mind here as I was preparing this message was of an ocean. And if you've been in a, in, on the ocean before, if you've uh, kind of played in the waves, right, I'm asking you to go out a little bit farther from, from there. I know you might be worried about seaweed in your feet or sharks or whatever, but let's just go out a little bit farther. Let's go out to where the sand actually is not even under your feet, okay? You going with me? You coming? Let's, I'll give you a raft so you can be on a raft, and so you're out, you're out a ways from the shore, and you're on a raft, and you're going up and down. Can you see it? Okay. Now the waves get a little higher, and you're getting worried. And the waves get so high that, that as, as they rise up to the top, you can actually see the shore and are comforted. But guess what happens? They go down, and all you see is water. And they go up, and you see the shore. And they go down, and all you see is water. A wall of water all the way around. That's life, okay? 
That's how our lives are, except we spend most of our lives in the trough, not at the crest. We spend most of our lives surrounded by the wall of water, and occasionally God lifts us up on that wave, and we get to peer out to a distant, a distant place where we see that palm tree, and we see the white beach, and we see the, the, uh, the tiki huts or whatever that is, right? Okay? But those are only momentary glimpses. They're only short and they're fleeting. Most of the time we have to remember them by faith. That's the delight that God is calling us to have. Some people have told me, I've talked to them along these lines, and they said, I can't have the faith of Abraham. It's just too much. And kind of in a, in a surprise move, I put my arm around him. I said, you don't have to. I know you can't. Faith is a gift. So as we conclude this morning, I want to encourage you, as you're in the trough, you're surrounded by water, you're, you're, you feel like your little blow-up raft is about to capsize, ask God for the faith to see the shore, to delight in what you cannot see yet. This trial isn't going to last forever. Your difficulty will not be around forever. And when it's done you will receive the satisfaction of your soul. I want to end with a personal illustration. My family is moving. I don't know when. I do know where. Mostly. <laughs> People have asked me, where are you going? So southern New Jersey. Where in southern New Jersey? I'm not quite sure. Keep praying for us. I'm not saying I'm doing what Abraham did, okay? But I see some parallels. It's a big move. It's a big move for us. It's calling us to have a lot of faith. It's not easy for me. I like to have control. I hope I've made that clear this morning. <laughs> Maybe too clear. But God is helping me. I'm a walking testimony of faith. He's helping me actually to believe that he keeps his word. I actually believe that. I'm not making it up. And we're going. We're actually going to go. And so I want to encourage you. You're a missionary too. We're going really as missionaries. But you're like a missionary in that God is calling you to follow him to a place you don't know. Do it. It's worth it. Let's pray.